Well, thank you for those that attended the fifth annual marriage conference, Becoming Your Best Us. And we started that conference talking about Christian marriage enrichment, which is different from marriage enrichment in general. Marriage enrichment is teach um, communication skills, conflict resolution, relationship roles, and you change from the outside in. Christian marriage enrichment is completely different. It starts on the inside and works out. We actually started with the difference between pride and humility and the paradox. In, uh, In pride, as we raise ourselves up to do our own thing, God opposes us and puts us down. But in humility, if we humble ourselves before the Lord, he raises us up and gives us the grace to do all things. So the title of this message is Disciples Make Better Lovers. And it seems only fitting that we use the classic marriage verses of Colossians 3, 18 and 19 of wives submit to your husbands and husbands love your wives to get started. But any good reader of the Bible doesn't just read something in and of itself, but actually goes back a little bit and tries to see the context of what they're reading about. So the Lord put Colossians 3, 18 and 19 on my heart. And I said, well, let's walk back and at least trek back to Colossians 3, 1. And then I got hit by the words, if then you were raised with Christ. And I thought, if then, Well, what does that mean? Well, we've been wrestling in our Sunday school group for over a year now about the difference between a Christian and a disciple. See, because we've called ourselves Christians, but what does that even mean? It can mean anything you want it to mean because it's so poorly defined in the Bible. It's only in the Bible three times. And it's pitiful when we look at where it's at. In Acts 11.26, it says, and the disciples were called Christians First in Antioch. Well, what does that say? I mean, nothing. But the, the Bible doesn't say to go into all the world to make Christians out of people. It says make disciples. Look at the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things I've commanded of you. I love the fact that we just did baptism. I love even more that there were fathers baptizing their sons. And you see disciples making disciples out of their children. I mean, I almost can't think of anything greater. In the past, I was excited to just see someone saved. I've got very much an evangelistic bent in me. And and I just wanted people to say a sinner's prayer. And so, I mean, even my own father... um, about five years ago, was undergoing melanoma surgery, and they weren't sure if he was going to make it. And be, right before he went into surgery, I said, Dad, do, do you know where you're going to be um, if you don't make it out of this surgery? And he, he shook his head. And I said, do you want to pray with me? And he said, yeah. And we said that sinner's prayer right there, right before he went into surgery. Unfortunately, well, fortunately, he lived. Unfortunately, five years later, there's no evidence that there's any difference in his life from the time he went into surgery and five years later. No difference in his beliefs, no difference in his actions. And while I think he might have gone to heaven if he had died on that bed, I I don't know where he is today. In fact, Billy Graham said the same thing. In 1990, he did a PBS interview. And he said, of all the people that came forward at his crusades and professed Christ, he believed only 25% of them 
actually became Christians. More depressing than that is there are groups that have done studies of evangelistic crusades and they track people one year after they make a declaration or a salvation prayer. One year later, only 6% of people are doing anything any different than what they did prior to the prayer or believe anything different a year later. Now, in fairness to Billy Graham, he preached to 200 million people and even 6% is still 12 million people that may have become disciples through his ministry. So I'm not putting the man down. But disciple, not Christian, is what Jesus called his followers. He called them brethren, faithful, elect, saints, believers, disciples. Didn't call them Christians. In Acts 6, 7, then the word of the gospel spread and the number of disciples multiplied greatly and a great many of the priests were obedient in the faith. Unlike Christian, the word disciple is very well defined in the Bible. Matthew 10, 24, a disciple is not above his teacher. And 25, it's enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher. Disciple is defined as learner. In all cases, it implies that a person not only accepts the views of the teacher, but that he also in practice is an adherent. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia states that the disciple of Christ today is four things. He's one who believes his doctrines, rests upon his sacrifice, and folks, you you can't get to heaven without resting upon the sacrifice. It's not works that will take you to heaven. In fact, we spent weeks talking about Romans, that we're not justified by our works, that we're justified by faith. So we do have to start our salvation with a proclamation of faith in Jesus and his death and his resurrection. Three, we have to imbibe his spirit. And four, we have to imitate his example. In my mind, there's three groups of people right now. You have group one that have either never heard the gospel or they've heard it, but they have not acted upon it. And they know that. You got group three over here And these are people that have acted upon a salvation message. They've got true conversion. And it's demonstrated by the fact that they just lived their life for Christ. They're true disciples. I mean, I can look around. There are people, Jim and Bev Barr. I mean, Christian and Sarah Beth, before he became your youth pastor, he was already a disciple. It's what made him eligible to become a youth pastor. Jonathan, Crystal, Glisten, they're disciples. Look at their lives. Look at the passions. Look at where they store up their treasure. Look at how they serve. Look at how they give. Their whole life is wrapped around serving God. But but then there's group two, and it's just somewhere in the middle. They've heard a message. They've responded. Maybe they were three years old, four years old, six, eight. Maybe they were 20 or 30. But from the time of that profession to now, maybe years, maybe decades have gone by. And there is really no evidence that anything has changed in their life. No no different belief system, no different behavior. That's the group that troubles me. I was in that group for over two decades. I was born in church. Now, I am Puerto Rican and Italian. So you would know that I would be Roman Catholic from birth, from both sides of the family. I mean, if you are Puerto Rican and Italian, you are a Catholic. And so I was in the Catholic church, 
My dad played the guitar. My mom read the readings out of the Bible. Uh, we were in our CCD classes, which would be like, you know, children's church, youth group. I did youth group. There were children that were getting born again. The priest talked about people having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And people were like, oh, yeah, I've had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ for three years. And I was like, wow, what are they talking about? I mean, so it was there. It, 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 even in the Catholic church, it was there. Confirmation, which you go through a series of classes, is to confirm your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. So while it was all there, I never got it. For a fact, I did not get it. I didn't realize I wasn't saved until I got saved. Because after I graduated from college, my first job was a terrible job. It was selling books door to door for the Southwestern Company. That was a horrible first job upon graduation. But that's where I was. And in order to even find a place to stay, you just go knocking on doors, begging people to let you live with them for the summer. And you're selling from nine in the morning or from eight in the morning till 9.30 at night, Monday through Saturday. You go away for meetings on Sundays. You just literally need a place to put your head down. So I was in Virginia Beach, Virginia, and we knocked on the door of a, this Christian outreach center. It was just a big house with a bunch of rooms, and, and that man called my reference. He called my mom, and he explained that what they were, and they did church services on Virginia Beach for just the tourists. That was one of their ministries, and then Thursday night, they had a connection group, and they, they had people come over, and I didn't know all this stuff. I didn't figure this stuff out till years later. I'm just a little Catholic boy, and, and they... When that man called my mother to check my reference to see if I was who I said I was, my mom just started crying. Oh, my God, let my son live there. He needs Jesus. She had gotten saved by that point and just begged that man to let me stay. And somehow could somebody talk to me during that stay, that summer, and, and introduce me to Jesus for real. And I went out door-to-door -door selling. And I'll tell you something else I noticed after visiting several hundred homes and sitting with the people, there was a distinct difference between a certain group of people. I mean, they were great husbands and great, great wives and great mothers and fathers. Their children were just awesome. And when I would get done, I'd ask them, you know, where they worked and where they went to school, trying to cross-reference and where they went to church to see if I could cross-reference. And they, they went to churches like Living Water, you know, Open Bible, Pleasant City. I had never even heard of churches like that. I had gone to St. Kevin's, St. Martha's, St. Michael's, St. Augustine's. I mean, every church that I'd ever been to had a saint in front of it. I didn't even know what, I was like, what, what is that? They're like, oh, we're Christians. I said, huh. So I've got this thing going on that I'm seeing that there is a difference in people. And then Thursday night, this man starts to disciple me. He starts to ask me, if I were to die, where would I go? I said, well, I'd go to heaven. Well, why do you know that? Well, and again, I was never antagonistic to the things of God. I believed in God. I believed in Jesus. But he helped me connect the dots. And he gave me a thing called a chick track. Anyone know what a chick track is? Raise your hand if you even know what that is. I don't even know if they print them anymore. Well, it's a little thing and you walk through it and it's all through the salvation prayer. But it was more than that prayer. It was, I was he was connecting the dots to me. And I sat down in my book bag and I went through that sinner's prayer. And from that day forward, my life was changed. I mean, I was a completely different individual. Now, it's taken decades of discipleship to get me to where I am today, but I was completely changed from that day forward. Everything changed in my life. I won't bore you on the details, but I can tell you this. I thought I was saved for 20-some-odd years in the Catholic Church. It wasn't until I really got saved 
that I realized I wasn't. And everything in my life changed. It has to change. Because if we look at what it, calls, what it costs to be a disciple, Jesus is very clear. Luke 14, 27. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. 14.33, so likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. I mean, remember the rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and says, what do I have to do to be saved? He says, just sell everything. Give it all to the poor and come follow me. And he walked away sad and disappointed, not willing to give up his life in this world, not willing to give up the things of this world for the life to come. In John 8, 3, to the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. In Luke 6, 46, he says, but why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Either you're gonna have to do, start doing the things I command you to do, or you can't call me Lord. In Matthew 7, 21, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven but he who does the will of the Father in heaven. In James 2.14, he says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? I mean, he asked the question, can you just say what you want to say and be saved? He answers it 12 verses later in 26. He says, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. I mean, it's as if a man were to say, I'm the most faithful husband there's ever been. Yet, really, in reality, I've just had dozens and dozens of affairs. I'm presently involved with several people, and I plan on having several more. Am I faithful as a husband because I declare it to be so? If I claim to be generous, oh, I'm so generous, I'm so giving. I give to the poor, I give to my local church. But in reality, I give nothing and never have, not a penny to the poor and nothing to my church. Am I generous because I claim to be, because I say I am? It's ridiculous. But it's the same in Christ. Faith without works is dead. So what then does it mean to be a disciple? Very clearly, Matthew 22, 37 through 40, Jesus says to him, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. If you knew nothing else, if you just knew to love God, and out of that love that God birthed in you, you love others. If you knew nothing else, you'd be there if you knew no other scripture but just to love God, to accept Jesus and let his life live through you and love others. John 3, 13, 35 says, by this, all will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. Sometimes I think we made it too hard. You gotta do all this, you gotta do all that. Man, if you just love God and love others. But it's in this context we can move forward in Colossians, starting with 3.1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of this earth. 
we have two lives that we're living. We got the life here and we got the life to come. But how much are we investing in this life versus the life to come? When you think of a, have you ever made just a a bad short-term financial decision and thought, man, this is going to cost me in retirement? And we never should have bought that car or that truck or that house. Or we look at the amount of credit card debt and we're just like, how are are we going to save for retirement? I mean, we are buried right now. But, you know, we can do the same thing for eternal things. We can get so caught up on trying to save in our 401K for the 10, 20, or 30 years you're going to live in retirement that we're not focused on the 10, 20, or 30 million years we're going to spend in heaven. Matthew 6.20 says, But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Exodus 20, 5 and 6 says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of their parents, to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations for those who love me and keep my commandments. Spiritual investment. When I think of spiritual investment, I think of this little thing I keep in my pocket. If you're under the age of 30, you may not even know what this is. It's a handkerchief. I actually only know two people that have ever carried a handkerchief. One was my father and one was my father-in-law. And there's only one person prior today that even knows whose this is. It's not my father's. I led my father to Christ. It should not be so. A father should lead their son to Christ. Amen? A father should be discipling his son. Blessed me to see Michael Sism up there, the others, Chris Webb baptizing their children, blessed me. But when I think about this, I think about my father-in-law and I think about the spiritual heritage. See, I'm 49 years old. He was 49 years old when he had a massive stroke that left him debilitated, my age. And he passed away at 58. But you know, he was a Marine and he was a good man. He came out of the Marine Corps he did a lot of work in civ- uh, civic organizations, president of these different, you know, the Ruritan, Civitan kind of thing. A lot of good works. Um, but he moved around a lot, and he moved to Sumter, South Carolina, and he moved next door to a Dr. Bradford. Dr. Bradford was a dermatologist by profession, but that's not what it, where his heart was. He was also a ministry leader for Campus Crusade for Christ, And that's where his true passion was. And mama tells me that every time they were in their backyard, Dr. Bradford come over the fence and just bugged them about joining their small group fellowship. And they said, finally, you know, they were just tired of being harassed. They went ahead and just went. And in going there, Dr. Bradford asked my father-in-law, do you know where you'd go if you die? And even though he had some background in the Baptist, you know, his grandparents taught him some Bible and sort of a Baptist background, He said, you know, I don't really know for sure. And over the next seven years, Dr. Bradford, through that Sunday school class, my in-laws, they were discipled. He was discipled one-on-one. They were discipled in that discipleship class and became the believer. See, my wife was only six months old when that happened. But that's where her father and mother became disciples. And that's where they were able to disciple her. And now while I'm thankful that my father-in-law, when he passed away, 
He did have provision for the family. I'm more thankful that of the spiritual provision that he provided to my wife. Because, you know, 13 years ago, we signed divorce papers. Worst day of my life. I mean, I just, I can't even explain to you how dumbfounded I was that that's the position I was in. And I walked away. And three or four months later, I got a phone call. And she said, you know what? I know we signed these papers through our act of will, but I can't get a piece from God to turn them in. Folks, a life insurance policy won't give your children that. It's the spiritual legacy that he imparted into my wife that gave her that gift of faith. And she spoke those words and they convicted me. I said, you know what? Let's not. Let's try one more time. That was 13 years ago. We've got twin eight-year-old boys that have been saved and baptized here at Pleasant City. That's the spiritual legacy I would love for you to get a hold of. Matthew 7, 13 and 14, enter by the narrow gate. For wide and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go by it. Folks, you can go to hell any way you want. There's a bunch of people going there. Through tolerance, political correctness, Shoot, all roads lead there, but one, and it's narrow. Narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. That's Jesus' words. Narrow is the gate because it comes only through Jesus, only through Jesus. But it's not just narrow, it's difficult. See, he said some would see Jesus, some would hear the message, would know it's true, but would not follow the difficult way. They still want their life here. They want to live their life their way on their terms. They're not ready to give up the fun. So difficult is the way and few find it. Even if you see it, only few find it. If you're going to find it, there's three things you've got to get a hold of. And this is in your outline. You got to put to death some things. Colossians 3, 5, put to death fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. I mean, I used to think idolatry was the people that made those golden calves, you know, that's carved out of stone sphinx, made a wooden totem pole. I thought that was idolatry. You know, then I went through a series that says, really, idolatry is just when you know God wants you to do one thing, you say, no. I'm doing my thing. That's idolatry, that, that you're the God of I, the God of me. I want my way. I want to do it my way. Folks, if you think you can say a prayer and live your life your way, you're deceived. We have to put off some things. Colossians 3, 8 through 11. Put off these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language. Do not lie. Where there's neither Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, nor free, but Christ is all in all. Speaks, speaks to prejudice. We're all equal in the eyes of God. How does a marriage look when it's filled with selfishness, anger, bitterness, lying, and unfaithfulness? I mean, can anything stand on that? Now, nothing 
survives in a vacuum. If you put to death and put off some things, you have to put some other things on. What are those things? Tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. But above all things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, speaks to unity. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. Teaching and admonishing one another speaks to discipling. In 17, do this all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ speaks to humility. If we put these things on, the fruit of the Spirit should be evident in our life. What is that? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Can we do a marriage on that? Can we do a marriage full of love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and gentleness and fidelity? Can we be married to that? See, in light of this entire context, we can now look at Colossians 3:18 and 19 this way. Wives, submit to your own husbands. You don't even have to submit to a bunch of husbands, just your own husband. <laughs> As is fitting in the Lord. And husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter towards them. But if you're a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you should be an excellent lover, male or female. Here's the application. When you are challenged by God's word and you refuse to change, you are left in chains. You're in bondage. Couldn't be any clearer in Romans 6, 16. We even sang about it this morning. Know you not that to whom you yield yourself servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto, right, un, unto righteousness. Who are you obeying? I mean, look at your life. You are a servant to something. You're a servant to the enemy I mean, Jesus couldn't have been any clearer when he said, you're either with me or you're against me. There's, real, there's not even a group one, two, or three. <laughs> it's just you're with me or you're against me. From a practical sense, I mean, where your treasure is, your heart is. What are you passionate about? I mean, just ask yourself, what are you passionate about? Are you passionate about giving? Are you passionate about serving? Are you connected to the local body? Are you growing? I mean, it doesn't even matter what age you are. Whether you're a youth, whether you're middle-aged or older, it's all the same thing. Christ is all in all. We're gonna do things just a little bit differently. We're not gonna come forward, not gonna make you stand up, pray with anybody, walk down an aisle. I mean, it's a very personal decision for us to make. But I'm going to leave you with this last scripture in 2 Corinthians 13.5. Paul says, examine yourselves. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. If everybody just would bow their head and close their eyes, nobody looking around, examine yourselves 
to see whether you're in the faith. Are you in group one? Have you never heard the message of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord? Or have heard it but never responded to it, have chosen to live life your way? Or are you in group two that maybe you confess something as a kid or even as an adult, but years have gone by, maybe even decades, and there's no evidence in your life that you really are a believer. Folks, coming to a gathering on a Sunday morning is not your Christian duty. Believe me, I did it for 20 some odd years. Went to mass every Sunday, completely unsaved. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I'd like to pray for people. If you've never responded to Christ or you've responded but you've not lived for him, just raise your hand so I can pray for you. Nobody looking around, just raise your hand. I see your hand. You can put it down. I see your hand. I see your hand. Thank you. I see your hand. I see your hand. That's just being real. Because one day when we pass away and we never know the day or the hour, it will get very real. When we decide here, we'll be so thankful when we get there. If you raised your hand, just pray this prayer with me. You can pray it out loud or you can pray it to yourself. It doesn't matter. But pray this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, I believe in you. I believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. I accept his free gift of salvation to forgive all of my sins, everything I ever sinned or ever will sin. I accept you as Lord of my life. Have your way in me. I don't want to be a Christian. I want to be a disciple. I want to be faithful. I want to follow you all of my life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you raised your hand and you prayed that prayer with me, I just ask you to do one, one small thing. If this is the first time you've prayed that prayer, there's on the bottom of your handout, there's just a little sheet. We'll just ask for your name, some information, only because we want to follow up with you. We don't want to leave you hanging. We don't want to have you say a prayer and 10 years later, nothing's ever changed. We don't want you to be the, six, the 94% that did nothing a year after an evangelistic crusade. If you'll fill that out, one of our pastors will contact you. We'll help you get involved in a local group that can disciple you. We meet seven days a week. Before, I mean, I'll let the pastor talk to you this, but please just fill that out so we know who you are. Don't let this be the only thing you do to say the prayer. Amen? Amen.